If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's such a material connection with the past to see these objects that are all completely handmade, often beautifully decorated. They've lasted in many for the ones in this project for over a millennia. That was Kathleen Doyle discussing some fascinating medieval manuscripts. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Now, before we get on to today's interview, here's a quick reminder of our next event which is a Kings and Queens weekend taking place in Oxford on the 2nd and 3rd of March. It's two days of talks from expert speakers on a range of monarchs, including Elizabeth I, Robert the Bruce, Henry VIII, Empress Matilda and a whole lot more. Find out more details and book tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. Now, the British Library has recently completed a major project, along with the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, to digitise and make publicly available online some 800 medieval manuscripts. The project is entitled Medieval England and France 700 to 1200. It's a very big undertaking, which means that it's now much easier for anyone to enjoy the beauty of the illuminated manuscripts of the period. Our content director Dave Musgrove caught up with Kathleen Doyle, lead curator of illuminated manuscripts at the British Library, and the digitisation project curator Toye Einonen to find out more. So I'm here in the British Library. Uh, I'm joined by Dr Kathleen Doyle, who is lead curator of Illuminated Manuscripts here, and Toya Inonen, who is the project curator on a uh, digitisation project which we're about to talk about. First up, Kathleen, I love your job title, lead curator (laughs) of Illuminated Manuscripts. What's what's the day in the life of a curator of Illuminated Manuscripts? Oh, gosh. Um, it's it's always different. Uh, it's a great privilege because uh, I look after manuscripts that are illuminated. That means they have some kind of uh, decoration, which can be from uh, full-page painting to uh, uh, elaborated initials in books. And at the British Library here, we have about 9,000 of them. So it's a, it's a great job. Yeah, a fun job, I would imagine. It must it must be enjoyable. I, what I love about it is that um, I'll, I'll never know everything. And every time I get to look at a manuscript, it's a privilege. Um, they're, they're full of... Wow. It's such a material connection with the past to see these objects that are all completely handmade, 
often beautifully decorated. They've lasted in many for the ones in this project um, for over a millennia. And um, it's it's just um, quite moving sometimes, really. Okay. And uh, Toya, you are you're a project curator, so you're handling documents, I imagine, on a on a daily basis or on a on a regular basis. What's what's that like? Uh, yes, I um, I joined a couple of years ago when this project started, and it has been a very different kind of workflow during these two two years. Because at the beginning of the project, I did very much work with the uh, manuscripts in selecting the manuscripts and kind of deciding which ones to be included in the project, which ones were the ones that we wanted to concentrate on. But as the project has gone forward, there's been so many different stages that a lot of my workflow has been quite administrative and following up that the uh, processes that happen here within the library, within this entire two-year period, that they go smoothly and that they we are meeting the targets we want to meet uh, for the publication of, of that just happened a few weeks ago. Yeah. Okay, so um, the, it's a, it's a two-year project that you've been working on, and uh, essentially it's to have uh, digitised 800 manuscripts, uh, 400 of which have come from the British Library and 400 of which from the Bibliothèque Nationale in France, and they uh, date from 700 to 1200 AD, so they are late Anglo-Saxon, uh, early medieval uh, manuscripts. Um what more? What more do I need to know about this project? How's how's it how's it been uh, progressed, and how did it start? It started with an approach from the Polanski Foundation, which is a, a private foundation that encourages um, research and promotion of cultural heritage. Um, Leonard Polanski. Uh, was educated in France at the Sorbonne, and he was very interested in promoting um, a resource that brought together the two great collections from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and the British Library. So we explored lots of different ideas about what might be possible, and we chose this area area, um, partly because it works um, in tandem with the, uh, the launch of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms exhibition, which is on now at the library, but also because there's, um, it was such a period of fruitful cultural exchange between Normandy, France, and England. There are lots of English manuscripts that are in Paris that have now been digitized as part of the project. And similarly, we have French manuscripts and Norman manuscripts that are here that traveled with... Um, uh, political figures and church uh, figures that went back and forth. Artists went back and forth. So it's a really exciting and innovative way to make all of this material available for the first time online. Okay, so tell me about the, the digitization process. What's what, what's actually happened? Well, in the actual digitization process, it's uh, it starts from uh, selecting the manuscripts. What do we want to include? After that, uh, we have had a um, conservator to check all, all the manuscripts to make sure that they are fit for the digitization and that they're in a condition that won't uh, deteriorate through, through the digitization aspect. After the checks, the manuscript went to the photographers. We had two photographers working for a year and a half just solely on this project here at the British Library. And uh, the same amount of work was done at the BNF as well to just get them photographed. So 
It's a very manual labor, one page at a time, one image at a time uh, that the photographers can, can do. After that, when we get all the images, of course, we need somebody to check that the images are there. And um, they're all public access. Anyone can look at these uh, these documents on the, on the viewer, as you said. Um, and uh, and there's lots of amazing, fantastic detail there. Um, there's lots of beautiful illuminations. My question to you is, um, what's in it for the, for the lay user, for the non-expert, the person who can't... Uh, read medieval Latin can't uh, can't get to grips with the paleography. Obviously, there are some some fantastic, beautiful images to see. Mm. But is there is there much else for for the lay reader to to get out of it? We very much were aware of that, and so we, the other aspect of of the project is that in addition to the website that Tu has just described, where you can bring up manuscripts side by side and in incredible detail. Here at the British Library, we've built a new curated website aimed at exactly the audience you've just described. So this is for interested um, people anywhere in the world um, at any level, really. We have um, 24 articles. We have very short descriptions of of each manuscript of, of a collection of about 110, so the sort of highlights of the 800, if you will. Um, We issue all jargon and explain terms. I think there are seven or eight videos on how to make a manuscript. We commissioned um, a calligrapher, an artist, to basically show all the steps from preparing the parchment to gilding to doing the design. Uh, we have two um, interviews with professors of history talking about how, what these manuscripts can tell us about the relationship between England and France at this time. So we're very much hoping that this is a way into this material for anyone who's interested in art, in history, in uh, law, music, Uh, from this period and that website is completely bilingual so you can pick whether you want to um to read these this in in england or in english or in french okay and so um that's great obviously yeah the articles are uh, are very interesting i've had a look at uh, at some of them they're very instructive um what about actually looking at the documents themselves so is there? Uh, would you would you like to maybe pick out one or two that uh, that that are, would be really worth looking at for someone who's not at all familiar with uh, manuscripts of this period? That would just give you a really nice taster to 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 understand what uh, what sort of things we're looking at. We have included some really spectacular manuscripts, and as an art historian, I, I suppose uh, one of the uh, I would perhaps choose an incredibly detailed Psalter that was made in Canterbury. It's um, a copy of uh, something that was originally a continental manuscript. It's it's known as the Canterbury Psalter, but it's now in Paris in the the, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale. Uh, It has a series of eight full-page frontispieces with lots of little scenes telling the whole history of creation, and then a really um, 
elaborate presentation of the Book of the Psalms in all three of St. Jerome's uh, translations or versions of the Psalms. It's got a, um, an Anglo-Norman French um, translation written above one of these and um, a couple of pages with Old English as well, and all of that's illuminated. Um, conversely, there is um, a spectacular uh, gospel books, so the, the four gospels that is, was made in Normandy in Preux, it's near um, uh, Rouen, that's now in the British Library. So we, we've sort of been able to have this virtual reunification of, of these um, works of art, really, where hundreds, literally hundreds of medieval paintings survive and they don't, that doesn't, that's not the case in any other media. We don't have hundreds of medieval wall paintings. If you go to the National Gallery here, you see the Wilton Diptych, but here on these two websites, um, there's the opportunity to see thousands of, of painting and they're, they're often gilded. So the, the gold will catch the light uh, sometimes there's silver, uh, which can be tarnished or not, also very um, bright and luminous. And, and then, of course, um, painted or um, um, decorated um, images and illustration to these texts. What I'm wondering about is um, do, where, where did this, this style come from? Where did the, the idea of illuminating manuscripts actually arrive from? What's the, what's the what's the derivation of this? Well, the it, it's uh, the earliest illuminated manuscripts we have are probably fourth and fifth century. It seems to be a very early from from the classical antique um, tradition. Uh, you, it's possible that this idea arose from the um, making stylized small decoration to separate elements of the text. So even in something like um, Codex Alexandrinus, which is a fifth century copy of the Bible, you have uh, little palm trees uh, between books. So the, in the Christian tradition, um, there doesn't ever seem to have been any um, problem with the idea of making manuscripts um, uh, the most beautiful and, uh, and, and embellishing the sacred text. And of course, a lot of the manuscripts that we have in the, in the project are um, biblical texts of one kind or another. Uh, but there's also um, a, a tradition of including any kind of a, a text with an author portrait. So the portrait of the person writing out the book, of illustrating uh, episodes um, in the text, I think it's with, with something that doesn't have page numbers and can maybe be a little bit hard to find your way around if you start each chapter or each book with an illustration. It not only provides a sort of visual commentary on the text, but it also may help in um, navigation and, and how, you, how, you use the, how you use the book. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier that, um, that the, the documents that have been uh, digitised for this project, um, uh, well, they're currently in the, the, the English and French uh, libraries, but they 
weren't necessarily, you know, haven't been there the whole time. Mm-hmm. They've, they've moved around. So how relevant is the fact that, that we've got this equal split of documents from the French and the and the British side. Is it is that actually telling us anything? Because these these documents, you know, they may well have been made in England, they may mm-hmm. well have been made in France, and they've, they've crossed the channel. Is it is that telling us anything? I think it, it, it's telling you, uh, uh, showing the the great riches of these two national libraries that we could um, digitize four hundred manuscripts each, and we still haven't from this period of seven hundred to twelve hundred, and there's still more to be done. Um, that's, of course, in, um, thanks to great collectors. Uh, originally, as you probably know, the, the British Library was was part of the British Museum. So the foundation collectors of uh, collections of, of, of Harley, of Sir Hans Sloan, Sir Robert Cotton, and then later in, in um, 1750s, Seven, the addition of the the royal manuscripts, around two two thousand manuscripts. So the these uh, um, early collections, which now form part of the the national heritage, um, I think they they show. And and when we're of course we're we're still adding um, to it with uh, with gifts, donations, and and acquisitions. Um, the the interest in preserving the past and um, preserving, in the case of these illuminated material, these great works of art. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What does it tell us, um, the, the existence of these manuscripts, what does it tell us about cultural contact uh, across the channel during the period. Is it is it going to illuminate us on that at all? It's one of the interesting aspects of the project that we are including uh, material before and after the conquest. And I think what we are discovering is how close those contacts were before as well as after. People moved. Uh, the thing about books is, of course, books moved, artists moved. Um, for example, on the, um, uh, on the uh, French website, you can call up um, uh, manuscripts that are held in different institutions that were probably created by the same artist and look at them side by side. But, uh, and... Obviously, the um, the impact of uh, and the interchange between um, monastic um, houses from Normandy and uh, and England is incredibly close. So, a lot of what we know about this period comes from these the, these books. 
Well, this is one of the interesting things, isn't it? The fact that the, the books did move between monasteries yes. and across the channel, as you said. I've, I've often been struck. How did that actually happen? There wasn't, you know, there wasn't an interlibrary loan service, was there? How 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 did these how did they move around? Well, there sort of is in a way, because if you, of course, with a with a, to create a new book, you need a copy, you need an exemplar, and if you are trying to. Um, create either a new work, a new legal text, or a, a collection of letters. You need something to copy from. And we have letters in this project where it's saying, well, please, can you send me your copy of um, Augustine or whatever, because we, uh, we, we need to, we'd like to make our own copy. And so sometimes, sometimes scribes were sent to, if the books couldn't be moved, but sometimes the books were were sent and then came back. And, that, and that's exactly why I think another reason I think you see these very close artistic connections, because there's lots of circulation of, of text and ideas and artistic styles and people uh, copy and and get take ideas from each other. So that's nice. So, so there, uh, there are actually letters existing from Abbot of Fleury to Abbot of... OK, we're looking at, uh, at the, uh, a piece. She has uh, just uh, called one up. Yep. Do you want it? <laughs> oh, it's just there again. I wanted to bring it back to the website. Um, there's an article there just explores this circulation of manuscripts before 1200 and uh, how, how did the manuscripts travel around and why did they travel around in a very accessible manner. It's, it's very, very quick and easy and in a way entertaining read as well because, for example, here we have an example where... Um, Lanfranc, who was Archbishop of Canterbury uh, from 1070 onward, um, who, uh, had a lot of connections to the continent and to Normandy because he had been a, a, a abbot of Beck before coming to, uh, to Canterbury. Uh, he sends a letter uh, and requests a copy of his own work. So work that he has written and composed he sends a letter to the continent asking, could I please have a copy of my own work sent to me so that it can be then copied in Canterbury? So it, it just means that when he came came to Canterbury, he probably didn't bring his own book with him. He just left it at the library at Beck and then they, uh, they sent him a copy. And now we have copies of that here in England as well. So we can trace this, this movement of, the, of the, uh, the manuscripts across the channel between monasteries. Do, does that mean that the style uh, uh, between English and French manuscripts is similar or can we see marked differences between the two? Absolutely. Another reason that we were interested in focusing on England and France, it was representing the strengths of the two uh, libraries' collection, but also be- because, precisely because people and books move so much at this period, often we, we're, we can't tell or it's not easy to tell whether it's an, it was made in England or France. Of course, if you're a, a, a trained um, scribe in France and then you come to an English um, monastery, you're not going to change the way that you write. Uh, and so we wanted to have the opportunity to be able to explore that a bit further by digitizing the full manuscript, obviously, this is going to give researchers um, an opportunity to see whether um, scribes collaborated in the same book. This is something that Professor Julia Crick um, talks about in her um, uh, interview on the on the website, and how this tells us about 
it gives us information about who's moving where. Even if we don't know who they are, we can see that some scribes are showing uh, they're working in England, but they're writing in a continental style. So we're really hoping that this is going to open up and, and tell us even more about these this con, um, complicated web of, of interactions and um, uh, the, the transfer of knowledge as well as, as the transfer of books. So you think it will be possible to, to identify individual scribes perhaps through the way they're writing things or, or more through the, the style of the illuminations? I think both are true. Um, The scribes with the handwriting, definitely. That some of the decoration, particularly in the early part of this um, period, is probably scribal as well, and it's effectively elaborate, large elaborated initials. When you get to the more detailed painting like we were looking at in um, the Canterbury Psalter and some of these um, incredibly... Um, elaborate initials or illustrations, we're probably looking at traveling commercial artists. And indeed, there's um, one who's called uh, an artist who works in both Normandy and in England. He's called the itinerant. Well, a, a modern scholar has called him that because he's, he's moving around a lot. So that's part of the rationale for the similarities. Um, it's Probably some aesthetic choice as well. Mm. I, I mean, there's um, there's been a lot of work done in biotapestry scholarship in mm, terms of trying mm. to uh, seeing similarities between work in, for instance, Utrecht Psalter and uh, and Prudentius Psychomachia, which is which is another one of your documents, yeah, fa- isn't it? Fabulous. Uh, uh, which uh, maybe maybe we can pull that one up while we're see. chatting about it. Yeah. Um, uh, Showing how you know the, the the tapestry, the embroidery seems to have been influenced by the artistic style in those documents. Presumably, that's an example of of how you can trace these these artists and the artistry between the two. You know, if you know where one document has been held yes. for a little while, you can kind of sense yes. That no, that's that's an excellent point. Uh, one of the two you mentioned that we've we've newly catalogued and provided lots of information about these manuscripts. So one of the things that it allows us to do, if you want to say, well, show me all of the manuscripts that were made in Winchester or made in Canterbury or made in um, Paris or Rouen, then you can do that. And then all of a sudden you can put, you can, you can put up to four manuscripts on the same um, website page and you can say, oh, okay, well, actually, that looks like a lot like that, either the scribe or the artist. And so I think we'll be able to then um, build some more connections um, because of this digitization. Yeah. Tell me about what we're looking at. Oh, this, yeah. is, this is great. Oh, this is, uh, this is one, one copy that we have here, here in the library of the Psychomachia, which is the War of the Soul. So it's an allegorical work, um, meaning that... Um, Seven virtues and seven vices are presented as human figures uh, and battling for a human soul. So it's, it's, a, it's almost like a comic book in a way of, uh, of, of these illustrations. They are done in a very distinct line drawing kind of style. And uh, it's just a fantastic imagery about uh, different uh, actions that these... Uh, humans that are embodying the virtues or vices uh, to, to each other. 
we, we talked a little bit earlier about how um, how you can sometimes see the the artists within these within the manuscripts. Sometimes mm. you, you, mm. we think they might have inserted themselves in in some of the in some of the um, illuminations. Um, are there any other ways that we can see the hands behind the documents? Do we ever see the people who actually made them within the within the manuscripts? Sometimes the um, uh, scribes will sign uh, their names or describe the circumstances of which they wrote it at the end of the book. And then this is, Tui said, it's in a colophone saying, in, in the year X, I finished this under the reign of, you know, Y. Uh, but thinking of the... Um, uh, artists literally inserting themselves into the book. I was thinking of, I don't know if we can call up Edwin Salter, Arundel 157, where there's this interesting um, image of under St. Benedict of um, uh, a monk holding a book. uh, And there's been lots of discussions whether that person, whether that's a sort of is this the is this the artist? Is this the scribe saying, you know, here I am? There he is. That's what I was referring to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's rather and and I like very much um, that. So you can you can even see the detail here. The little book says uh, is it's abbreviated, but it says the book of the Psalms. So it's probably this very book which he's offering to the saint. And then he around his um, uh, habit. Uh, if you go back down, he has it's written on his um, on the belt, the belt of humility. So uh, it's maybe it's I don't know if it's very humble to present you. <laughs> uh, so maybe this is the the abbot who commissioned the book, who sort of paid for it. This might be the artist. We we're not really sure, but he's he's literally grasping Saint Benedict's. Um, uh, shoe and and kissing it and and presenting this uh, book and a really vivid image, I suppose, of of somebody. Well, either the the patron or the scribe. Yeah, um, and it's a, yes, a beautiful little little moment. There, again, with again with this line drawing that we've been talking about before, this agitated style. Um, Yes, you can the, see, you can see similarities between the what yes, we were just looking at exactly. with the, the psychomachy. Huh? This is also an interesting image. Um, it's currently on display, actually, in the in the exhibition downstairs, um, because Benedict is presented as a state, uh, 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 sorry, as a saint. He's identified with his name and the, uh, the halo above his around his head. He's um, presented with in, in gold and colors. Um, very grand state, and that. But in contrast, the he's the monks to his left. Um, he's he's the the first one, and uh, there's also some discussion that the the one holding the book that this might be the abbot, um, and he's holding the first part of the Benedictine rule. Um, there. They're not. They're, they're, they just have a very light colored blue um, wash. So the contrast could well be deliberate that the, the saint is um, colored. He's in a, he's in a heavenly 
um, realm. And then next to him, the, the assembled monks are, are uh, just in, in pen drawings. Much to look at and enjoy in that image, isn't there? Yeah. Um, is this, uh, would it be fair to say that the, the illuminations in these manuscripts and indeed the scribal work is broadly the hand of men? Or do we see, do we know whether women were well, involved in Well, that's the problem, we don't know. There, uh, there has been a lot of discussion and there's some documentary evidence. We know nuns were writing, um, I think in... Um, near Canterbury. Um, they're not in this collection, not in this project, but there are images of, in manuscripts of, uh, of nuns uh, inserting themselves in, in the midst of an, um, uh, an initial. Gouda is a famous example of it. Um, so they were, but we just, at this point, don't have a lot of evidence as to the scale the scale of it. Okay, um, so so coming to a, to a conclusion, we talked a little bit about some of the research um, themes that you hope might come out of this project in terms of comparisons mm. between um, uh, collections and and where they might have come from. Are there any other um, things, sources, um, research uh, ideas that you hope might come out of this work? That I mean, medieval Twitter was was agog and excited when when news of this uh, was announced the other day. So presumably researchers will be coming to this collection and, and be all over it. Is there anything that you hope that might be achieved? I hope both. Well, it's going to be, and and uh, we've. This is where we were just in, in Paris for the official launch last week and talking to um, academics there. And this will be absolutely transformative for their research because so many questions can be answered by using the digital images. But equally, I'm just as excited about making this information um interesting, available to a much broader audience. Um, and I'm hoping that the these descriptions, the articles, the videos, we're hoping to add more videos, perhaps in a little animated film, um, to make this real this this period of, of history and and of art um, available to anyone who who is interested. No plans to transcribe, though, or to to um, translate. Massive, a massive undertaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The well, some text, obviously, there are there are modern translations. Others, like medical texts, for example, often there are no critical editions. There's nothing between us and the and the manuscripts. So this this is how we have our knowledge of uh, of what was known about medicine and, and treatment in, in, this, in the Middle Ages. Um, so there's lots to be done. Well, um, thank you very much, Kathleen. Thank you, Tui, for um, uh, an, an excellent introduction to what's a, a brilliant resource and one that I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners will very much enjoy having a look at. Thank Wonderful. you very much. Thank, thank you. you. So that was Kathleen Doyle and Toya Einonen talking about the Medieval England and France project. And if you'd like to know more, visit the website bl.uk forward slash medieval hyphen English hyphen French hyphen manuscripts. OK, well, that's about it for today, but we will be back on Thursday with more from the world of history. 
Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.